the stories from the Old Testament and from the Gospel refer to the widows. And I think it's important that we look at the historicity of our faith regarding women. In the story of Elijah, Elijah is sent by God to find a woman who will prepare meals for him and tend to him while he's doing his prophetic gifts in a small town which he knows they're not going to be pleased with. He goes and finds a woman and assumes, obviously, that that's who God wanted. So he asks her for water. She goes to get him water and then she, he says, oh, I'd like a cake too. And she talks to him and says, and remember now, this is really critical. She's not an Israelite. She has nothing to do with the current faith of Israel. But she said, well, I only have a little jar of bread and a little thing of oil. That's all I have. And I'm going to eat my last meal and die. And Elijah says, whoa, 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 whoa. go ahead. God has insisted that you will have enough meal and enough oil. All that you need. So she does what he asks out of faith in him and the word of God, the prophet speaks. And it was, it worked. She had meal enough or bread enough to feed her household from the little to an abundance because of faith. The second story is the one that I missed for a long, long time in understanding. It was the woman who, after all of these people who had wealth and everything else, put their money in the treasury, lots of it, she came forward with two coins equal to a penny. She puts them in, and Jesus makes note that her gift was really important. She gave all that she had. The point I want to make here is that I didn't understand a lot about this passage because I never thought about the condemnation of the scribes in the beginning. Jesus was really upset with the scribes. He talked positively about the scribes in other passages, but here he directs them towards condemnation. So what's that about? Well, the scribes were in charge of the assessment of widows. And they got to play games with the treasury. They could up the ante. They could change the rules to whatever they wanted so that their abuses were responded to in like kind and they could benefit with their great life. Actually, If you look at the story closely and the way it's written, this woman coming forward who was in poverty, she was in poverty because of the scribes. She had what little she had because the scribes had taken her livelihood. Very different look at a story that I'd seen for a long time as being, oh, this nice, faithful woman gives all that she can. 
all that she has. But it's in response to the scribes and their corruption. I think historically we need to better understand some of the stories about women in our scripture. Better come up with some better understanding of number one, their faith, which stands out boldly. Their commitment to God by just doing what is asked without question. Recently, I've had this thing about news. I can't stand to listen to news anymore. I have a real difficult time. It gets me angry and upset. And I think of all of the nasty things that come up in me, and I don't feel good about them at all. So I took to turning off my radio in my car. And I went and found two, a couple of CDs that I liked and had in the past and so forth. The first one was Jimmy Smith, and, and uh, David and I know Jimmy Smith well because he was a wonderful jazz har- organist on a, I think it was a, a Hammond's, Hammond, yeah, anyway, sort of a local organ. But he played this beautiful music, and I was depressed as all get out because I was living in Cleveland going to college, and it was snowing and raining and sleeting, and I didn't want to go outside, but I had to go to classes. I had to carry my books through the rain. I didn't have adequate cover for them. And I would get back and sort of have half-torn pages in my textbook. So it was a very depressing time. Well, my roommate said, you know, Skip, you look really punk. Terrible. So I got an idea. He says, here, I want you to play this album. And he played Jimmy Smith's The Cat. Jazz, New Orleans, all over jazz. And I listened to it, and all of a sudden, I was aware that my spirit suddenly changed. I could deal with the sense that I was still frustrated, anxious, and angry. But that music sort of rung, and it was just so uplifting. Well, the other music that I pulled out of my history was Phil Collins. Seriously. Well, I put in that CD and I was playing that and I'm cranking it up and open up the windows of the car and just singing. And I, all I could think of was there was a, a ad of some course where a woman comes up, she's singing the music, and all of a sudden the guy's next to her, he rolls down his window, he's singing the music and everything else, and it was just really neat. They were traveling down the road singing the great song. Well, Phil Collins for me was really something. He did a lot of songs well. But on this album, there were three pieces that really struck me as profound. I come, I've studied a lot of storytelling, and I come from a tradition with my father and my grandfather and my great aunt of being storytellers. Well, Phil Phil Collins has a storytelling nature about himself. And I wanted to share with you some of the words of one of the songs that moved me 
And here I am talking about these two women trying to figure out what's going on in the scripture. And he has this song. And all of a sudden, I realized after listening to it for about a week and a half, that it was fitting for this morning. The song goes, she calls out to a man on the street. Sir, can you help me? I'm cold and I have nowhere to sleep. Can you help me? He walks on, doesn't look back. He pretends he can't hear her. As he he starts to whistle as he crosses the street, he's embarrassed to be there. Oh, think twice. It's just another day in paradise. Just another day in paradise. So many of us have it so well and so good. We live in paradise and we want to avoid the little bumps in the road, the little woman suffering on the side of the street. And I found that my anger and frustration with the news had caused me to retreat and become insular and isolating. That my ability to reach out and care about someone had been greatly affected. As a chaplain in Florida, I had a staff person once say, you know, I'm really surprised how you can go into the student union, sit down and talk to people, and all of a sudden, things are happening. I remember sitting near your table when you sat down, and two girls were talking about, they didn't quite understand why their boyfriends were hitting them and beating them. And what were they doing wrong? And he said to me, I couldn't believe you, and they couldn't believe you when you said, what the hell is that about? No one should be able to hit you. There should never be violence brought against you. They were stunned because I was wearing a collar. And I couldn't believe that somehow they would allow that concept that somehow they were responsible for the violence that was being done to them. I had other situations where I'd sit down at tables and literally all of a sudden things would open up in front of me and I'm going, oh my God, how do I deal with this? What do I say? How do I react? But it was more important to hear them and allow them to share and I didn't have to react or do something for them, but hear them out. I had one student, I told this a long time ago, he was there and he was kind of down and I go, what's, what's up? And he said, well, he said, I got a friend, I'm really worried about him, he's thinking about committing suicide. And I said, well, I said, I had a horrible experience just after I became chaplain here. I said, there was a little boy who had a surgery and it was a simple surgery, but the anesthesiologist never checked to see what kinds of anesthesia this child might be have problems with. The child wound up brain dead. In the intensive care unit, I walked in and the first thing I saw was a boy about my son's height laying in bed. 
And I want to tell you, I lost it. Just burst out into tears. The mother came over and we hugged and we cried and we hugged and we cried. We hugged and we cried until finally I said, I got to get something out of it. I got I to gotta help. I got to do something. And I'm walk, looking at the heart monitor that's going like this. Boy's brain dead, but the heart monitor's going up and down. And all of a sudden it hit me. All the phrases that people use, I just want an even keel. I just want life to go straight and smooth and be wonderful. And that, friends, is the death sign. Our lives go up and go down. That's the vitality of life. And it was so shocking, and I shared it with this gentleman. Four years later, he comes into my office, and I'd forgotten his name. But I recognized the voice. He said, I just stopped back. Say hi. I said, hi. And he said, you know, we were talking, and you shared a, a story with me. He said, well, I want to go back and be honest and say, I was thinking about suicide. I said, oh, thanks for telling me. How are you right now? He says, I'm working for a suicide prevention center. I've used your story often. That we're going to have highs and lows in our life because our heart tells us that. And he said, it's made a difference. And I've actually made an impact in some people's lives because of your story. When I was a chaplain, I was attuned to listening. I was attuned to being present, attuned to being with people. And also, they were with me, and they helped me through other things, too. It wasn't just a one-way street. What I realized, though, now, currently, I'm getting so close. I'm willing to close off myself to all of these other actions that are going on around me. And that, to me, violates the very love that God calls us to. To be overly generous in love with others, regardless the cost. Vis-a-vis the faith of the two women. Their faith was alive and responsive to the needs of others. We need to put ourselves back in that kind of place. I heard from a number of people, well, I don't want to talk politics. And all of a sudden, I had a flashback to my high school days when I had a teacher. And the teacher said to me, said to our class, he said, you know, he said, when you read an editorial in a newspaper and you believe it, you have an obligation to go out and find five more articles, editorials, on the same subject. Because you're going to find that what you're believing is not necessarily the whole case, the whole matter. Because everyone will approach it differently. He always encouraged us to think, to be logical. And I hated it when, in fact, we had tests 
And when you wrote an essay, you had to be able to back it up with two historians or he wouldn't count the credit. But he enabled us to be thinkers and to think through things, which led me to another situation where, in fact, I found that many times when I stop thinking, when I limit and narrow my thinking, I can feel very righteous and self-centered. And the worst thing today is for us to go to that place. The worst thing is for us to avoid conversation, even though sometimes it's a disagreement with an individual. Because it's in our disagreements, if we're open to hearing, this is about the learning process in the way of love, if we're open to hearing what another person is saying, not trying to defend our position, not trying to respond out of, well, you're wrong, but to respond out of, how, how do you understand that? How, help me to understand what you are saying. That we're participating in a dialogue. Then, in fact, we find a better place to be. I'm going to end this simply with a rabbi story. Rabbi at Yeshiva University was telling us that he had a tour with some people totally outside of the Jewish faith. He walked in and there were two rabbinical students arguing vociferously over a very short passage in the Talmud. The guy stood there utterly stunned. Finally, he turned to him and said, you know, he says, I don't understand how they can argue so forcefully about one little passage in the Bible. He said, oh, well, they know that there is always a third opinion. That out of dialogue comes a greater awareness of how to think and how to be and how to act. So when we close ourselves off to dialogue that may in fact be confrontational or so we think, we need to open ourselves a dialogue so that in fact we can grow and learn. It is so easy for us to do what I did, to retreat, be overwhelmed, But the difficult task in learning to follow Jesus in the way of Jesus' love is to step up, step out, and engage. It's funny, when I think of the rabbi's story, I also think of when I suddenly made that intuitive awareness of what Hegel was really writing about when he wrote about the dialectic He starts with the things that are, quote, most unknowable, being and non-being. And if you dialogue with being and non-being, there's another aspect, which is becoming. 
And Hegel works this triad, this dialectic, to the point where he actually, and this is the weird part, because I didn't know it when I was in college, but I learned it in seminary, that Hegel was a Christian philosopher. He felt the final dialogue was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That that was the most concrete, powering awareness in our lives. I'm going to give you some homework like Chuck used to. It's about learning this particular month in preparation for our way of love. So I want you to look at your prayer book and you'll find that there's daily readings and there's readings for the Sundays. I am going to try to do daily readings of the Bible so that stories like this can enable me to break through my limitations, my narrowness, and my lack of mindfulness so that, in fact, God's love and God's presence might be able to come upon me in a way that I can reconnect to our world. Amen.